I want to invite the rest of you to open up your copy of God's Word as we consider for the second time the letter to the Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Last week we began by looking at these verses and, and talking about the, the importance of personal holiness. That yes, the doctrine of imputed righteousness is absolutely essential and we, and we really make our money as Presbyterians dealing in imputed righteousness. But the fact nonetheless remains that there is a great emphasis in Scripture, not on Christ's imputed righteousness, but on your righteousness. And so, we're going to consider this day how it is that we are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly within us. So I invite you to take your copy of God's word as we read. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this, your word. Lord, it is light and life to those who believe, but yet it contains the very stench of death to those who are perishing. And we ask, Lord, that even now the Holy Spirit would attend these words and, and impart spiritual life and spiritual growth to everyone in this room. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so brief recap. This series is about the book of Colossians, and the book of Colossians is all about living in light of the supremacy of Christ. Basic premise. If Jesus is supreme over everything... And if the point of everything is to bring praise and glory to Jesus, to magnify his name, then there ought to be some sort of response, some sort of tangible, practical, dare I say visible, difference in those who swear allegiance, who are trusting in, living for Christ. 
And so Paul has laid a great theological foundation in the first two and a half chapters. He really dives deep and he sort of opens the curtains and gives us a profound look into the kitchen, so to speak, in that Christ is the head of all things. But now he's turned his attention to the practical issues that should define and describe and depict our Christian experience. And so he begins with this look at personal holiness. And we talked about that last week. We, we as humans, we cringe at the concept of true holiness or what we could call evangelical holiness, but we, we actually flock to and we love legalistic righteousness or holiness. We humans love lists of behaviors that allow us to know and feel that we are on the inside track. And so religions throughout the world have their moral lists of behaviors. Groups, organizations, clubs, I don't care what kind of people you have, where there are two or more gathered, you will have a code of conduct, written or unwritten, that defines and describes who is on the inside track and who is on the periphery and who is not in at all. That's what we do. We specialize in it. And the temptation in the church is to believe that if I'm good enough, that grants access and preferential treatment from God. And that, of course, is the vain religiosity that Jesus himself came to destroy. But yet it dies hard. And so Paul himself in chapter 2 describes the utter uselessness of that religious type behavior to actually reign in and mortify or kill the flesh and its desires. So, so we talk about holiness, but understand that if your definition, if your idea of holiness is simply being good, Paul writes in chapter 2, that, that all those behaviors don't actually mortify the flesh. They don't help you restrain the flesh. In fact, if you've ever tried dieting, and most of us have, you know that not eating simply makes you hungrier, right? And that's what Paul alludes to in chapter 2. But that doesn't stop him in chapter 3, verse 5, from saying, put to death what is earthly within you. Because holiness matters. Last week we talked about the fact that true holiness, evangelical holiness, is not simply a list of behaviors. It's not, you can't tell if someone is holy by their haircut. You can't tell if someone is holy by the accent they, with which they speak. You can't tell if someone is holy by even the tattoos on their body. Some of which may testify to a, a past. But you can't tell by externals. In verse 11, that, that should put to death any idea that you can tell who's holy by appearances. 
by the fact that he talks about there's, there's no Greek, uh, in, in chapter 11, there's no Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian. The, the Scythians were from the north part of the Black Sea. They were in the class in that cultural mindset of barbarian. But the bottom line is they were like the, the most barbaric of the barbarians. These were the people who drank horse blood and stuff like that. They were just nasty, horrible people. But yet in Christ, none of that matters. In Christ, we're all part of the same family. So holiness is not a matter of tangible, visible appearances about attitudes and stuff like that. But holiness nonetheless matters. It's part of why you were called to be holy. It's part of God's purpose for the world or, or for the church in the world. Going back to Exodus, if you recall, in Exodus chapter 19, when Israel gets to Sinai, he takes Moses up to the top of the mountain, and he gives this, and he gives this offer, so to speak, to the people. And he says, hey, all the nations of the world are mine, but if you keep this covenant, you will be a holy nation, a kingdom of of priests. And then that same reality, fast forward thousands of years, is repeated by Peter that we who are in Christ are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. The idea of being a kingdom of priests is missiological. A priest has two has two purposes. One is a benefit. A priest has access to the deity. And second, a priest exists to intermediate, to be an intermediary between the laity and the deity. So if we're a kingdom of priests, what does that mean we're to be doing? One, we're to be enjoying the benefits of access to God. But second, we are to be in the world serving as an intermediary, so to speak, by taking the good news to the world. But there's something about being holy that adds a visible uh, uh, confirmation of the veracity or truthfulness of what we are saying. So last week, we talked about the necessity of personal holiness. Jesus puts it on the line. Anyone who follows me will walk in the light, period. We spoke of several obstacles to our personal holiness. Namely, how there's this thing called the world, the culture, the system that seeks to deceive. There's the flesh, which if you take away the world and the devil, I'm still a bad person. I still have horrible in desires and inclinations. But there is also the devil who seeks to destroy. Now, when we talk about pursuing holiness, we forget that we have these three enemies. We oftentimes think in terms of holiness as simply overcoming bad behaviors. I have a problem swearing, and I need to, I need to learn, control my tongue. And so you, you, may, you may choose, some people choose to punish themselves. You know, I'm going to bite my cheek every time I say a swear word. Or, or I'll, I'll put a quarter into the jar whenever I say a swear word. Or, or something like that. Holiness is not about simply stopping bad behaviors. 
But we oftentimes think that, oh, when I sin, I've just messed up. Or, oh, when I've gotten something, a victory, then I've had a success. And so we can think that that holiness is kind of like an athlete who's trying to beat their best time. We forget that there's actually an enemy who is out there fighting against you. That this isn't a contest. It's not a self-improvement project. This is a war. You are a battle in the war. And we, in our great, in our culture, we have talked a lot about, in recent years, about predators. There are predators out there that want to harm you, that want to harm your children. Okay? And that's true. But I want you to understand that sin itself is a predator. In Genesis chapter 4, God tells Cain, but before Cain has crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, before he's past the point of no turning back, what does God tell Cain? Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. God has just described sin as a predator, hunting stalking Cain. And that is the same for you and for me. Sin is not just this accidental thing that happens. Sin is an active belligerent in the war for your soul. Which is why, to get to today's sermon, we must, as Paul says, put it to death. You must wage war against what remains of the earthly nature within you. In verse 5, put to death, kill, execute what is earthly within you. You don't just grow out of sin. You must put it to death. So what I want to do today is give you four I'm sorry, three. I, I shortened it because people don't like four. They like three. So I want to give you three helps, aids, if you would, from this passage on how it is you can mortify the flesh, how it is that you can wage war. My guess is that if you're, a, if you're sitting here, you don't like the fact that you sin. You don't like the fact that you, that you have these repeated stumbles in the same area. But it's also true that perhaps, perhaps you're stumbling not because you're not a Christian, but because perhaps you're waging war ineffectively. And so I want to help you wage war more effectively, okay? So the first principle if you're taking notes, is the flesh must be mortified in the power of the Spirit. The flesh must be mortified in the power of the Spirit. Thinking back to Romans 8.13, which states it very starkly. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, 
you will live. So the choice before us really is life and death. But he, notice how he does not say simply, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so understand right now that we are not talking about simply letting go and letting God. You are not a passive participant in this war against sin in your life. You don't just throw up your hands, sit back and say, well, I'll be holy someday. No, you are called to take up arms, take up the, the shield of faith, to strap on the full armor of God and wage war. And you do that in the spirit. Now, what does that even mean, in the spirit? Well, first of all, it means you have to have the spirit of God within you, which is to say you must be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I refer to you as brothers and sisters because I assume that you are in Christ. And a characteristic of someone who is in Christ is that they do not like sin. They may do it. And in the moment of doing it, you may, you may like it, but, but you are very quickly filled with remorse having done it. A characteristic of someone who is in the flesh is they love the darkness. Jesus says so himself in John three nineteen. So the very war is only going to be waged. It's only a war if you are, in fact, a Christian. Because if you are a Christian, you have a new nature. You are not the old person. New life has begun within you. And there is an irreconcilable war, per the Westminster Confession of Faith, between the old and the new. And that will create agitation. That will create stress. That will create conflict. So you must be a Christian, otherwise the most you will do is seek to conform your behavior to the, to the perceived code of conduct of your people group. And history is full of that. We call that nominal Christianity, where people who are as dead as a doornail sit in the pews and sing and throw money in the plate and dress up because this is what good people do. And they want cred in the community. And they want that peaceful, easy feeling in their heart. But yet, there's no love of spiritual things. There's no hatred of the old life looking forward to the new life they're just dead so you have to be a christian to mortify the flesh but doing it by the spirit putting to death by the spirit also means that you approach your life from a fundamentally optimistic vantage point what do i mean by that well you can be confident according to the word of god you have been set free. You are not a slave to sin. You do not have to obey its beck and its call. 
Think about that. So when you are in a situation and you're feeling the temptation, sin does not have dominion over you. Let that inspire you with hope. It also means that because sin is not our master, it is in fact a form of treason to act as if it is. Because in Christ, who has set us free from the tyranny of the devil and the world and the flesh, we have been set free to serve the king of kings. So what kind of statement are we making when we voluntarily choose to serve a former and fallen master? So walk in the newness of life, knowing that you have been set free. And, and Paul drives home the freeness that we now have by speaking in terms of the fact that we have put off the old nature and put on a new nature. In verses 9 and 10 of our passage, we, we put off the old self and we put on a new self. And this new self is being continually renewed or, or, or refreshed, rebuilt. It's, it's continually being worked on. It's a work in progress, this new self. This means that your old patterns, your old desires, your old priorities, they are not the definition of who you are. If the old self has been taken off, and by the way, he's not referring to the behaviors we do to stop doing something. He's referring to the objective, once-for-all act that took place when we came to faith in Christ. The old self is dead. So you're not a slave to those old desires, priorities, passions that he's going to talk about. Walk in the newness of life. When you act, trust in the fact that God is working in and through by the Spirit to make you more into the image of Christ. You are a work in progress. And so we walk in the confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within us making us more into Christ's image. And then as we grow in grace, and as the Holy Spirit trains our conscience, because your conscience is trainable, your conscience is conditioned by any number of things, but the Holy Spirit does one thing very, very uh, insistently, and that is he convicts the conscience, and he comforts the conscience. The Holy Spirit speaks to the conscience. And as the Holy Spirit trains your conscience to value life and reality along the lines of the Redeemer, listen to that. Don't rebel against your conscience when the Holy Spirit is training it according to the Word of God. So it must be done by the Spirit. Or else, at best, you're simply going to rein in some undesirable behaviors for at least a while. Second, the flesh must be mortified on all fronts. This is where we have a really hard time. We think, because we think that, that 
that sin is just this particular thing and, oh, I got to deal with this problem area to use the earlier example of, of swearing too much or whatever. Oh, that's the problem. I have to address my, my speech patterns. Okay? That may be true. But sin is much more like, like, a, like a weed. It's like kudzu. Okay? Kudzu, you know, the, the, the bulb or the head of it, whatever, is underground, and, and it sprouts all over the place. And it's very difficult to kill. It, 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 kudzu can be eradicated, but it's really tough. And there's nobody who's happy when kudzu invades their property because it's such a tough, tenacious weed that just when you think you've got it beat, it's popping up somewhere else. Now, sin is very much like that. What we are called to do in verse 5 is put to death whatever is earthly within us. Notice how Paul uses a very broad term to describe what it is we are to be putting to death. We are to be putting to death sin in all of its expressions and forms in our life. And you must wage war on all fronts because if you try to focus on this, sin will rear its head over here. Sin is an active aggressor against your soul. It's not just a, an impersonal thing we do. And so as John Owen once said, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Because just when you think you've got it handled over here, it's wrapping its tentacle around your leg to drag you down over there. It requires vigilance and diligence and an aggressive posture of whenever you see or perceive a sinful impulse within you, you must wage war against it across the board. You can give it no quarter in any area of your life. Or else in that area, sin will grow and blossom and produce fruit that according to scripture leads to death. But how do you wage war across all fronts? Well, it's interesting here in this passage that he gives two lists in, in verse, in verse uh, 5. I'm sorry, in verse 8, he, he gives a list about anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. But then before in verse 5, it's sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Okay, he gives two lists of five. It's interesting that in, in the original Greek, in verse 5, all four, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, these are all decidedly sexual terms. It's not a broad, evil desire here isn't just some general term for anything that's evil. In the context, he's being very specific. These are all sexual. Just like in verse, in verse 8, these are all sins of temper. You know, it's kind of interesting that he uses as his, as his paradigmatic lists of sins, he uses sins of sexuality and sins of temper almost, you know, and as I look around the world, as I look in my culture, I mean, road rages everywhere, people are angry and mad and blowing up at people, and, 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 and of course, sexual sins, are, I mean, those are perennial. It's almost like there's this thing called human nature that doesn't change. That these were issues in first century Colossae 
and their issue here. But it's because they're so universal that they serve as a great example to people no matter where they are. And what he does is he's actually in the first list with sexuality. He starts with the act and he works inward to the core issue. And then in regards to the anger, he starts in the heart and works his way out to the expression. So he goes the opposite direction in both cases, but he's doing so for a point. You see, we, like dealing with kudzu, often want to deal with the presenting problem. In, in verse 5, the presenting problem is sexual immorality. Uh, not to go into too much detail, but you can see sexual immorality. That's the thing that can be beholded or beheld in or be, whatever the right term is, tense of the word. Okay, but, but sexual immorality is the visible thing, the visible expression. And that's what we confront. But lurking behind sexual immorality is impurity. And lurking behind impurity is passion. And lurking behind passion are our evil desires. Now, part of the reason we are so ineffectual in our fighting is we deal only with the presenting problem. That's why moral codes and, and rules of conduct and stuff, they can only limit themselves to external, visible, verifiable behavior. But man, if you're not digging down and pulling up that weed all the way to the core, you're not going to deal with it. It's going to keep resurfacing. Now, he says something here that is very germane to the public, to the, to the current contemporary debate. There is a movement that was, I would have thought, completely defeated at the time of the Reformation. But there's a movement in modern day circles that wants to uh, absolve culpability for one's desires. They are what they are. I wake up in the morning and I desire bacon. It just is what it is. You know, my desires are what they are. But that's not the perspective of Paul. Even your desires are subject to the moral accountability of God. Because a desire for a sinful thing is sinful. Okay? But notice how deep the war with sin has to go when we're confronting things that, that for many people, perceptibly, how do I control what I desire? I just want what I want, right? But that's how deep you go. But, but then he throws in this seemingly out of left field thing when he says covetousness. So four terms to talk about uh, sexual sin, and he goes in from the act, then he throws out covetousness. What in the world? Is that just, is that just the, the fly in the ointment, or is he going somewhere? Well, I think he's going somewhere. Because at the core of it all, when you start here with the, the, the act of immorality, back up from the impurity, the passions, the desires... 
what are we looking at? We're looking, if we get into the heart, we're looking at a heart that is dissatisfied with what one is and with what one has, the providence that God has set forward for one's life. And instead of submitting ourselves joyfully to the one true and living God and his purposes, we want more. We want something different. And so at its core is coveting a life that is on our terms, that is free from the authority and control of the living God. It's covetousness at the core, and he identifies this as idolatry. Now, this is really interesting to me. Because as soon as he refers to it as covetousness, this immediately brings to mind the Ten Commandments. And if you think about the Ten Commandments, there's only one commandment that concerns, in its, in its stated command, one commandment that concerns something that is not visible. There's only one commandment that that concerns itself with the inner life of the person primarily on the face of it. Yes, every commandment has implications for the inner life of the person, but only one commandment concerns itself with the inner life of the person. You know which commandment that is? The tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbors, and he lists all the things. And to covet is to commit idolatry because you're wanting something. Something has so gripped you that you cannot envision the good life without it. And so you want it. You plot over it. You mull it over. You think of how your energies can be exerted to make it yours because you are dissatisfied with what you have. You're dissatisfied with your house, your property, your wife, your husband, your kids, your job. I just, and, and this other person, other thing is so much better. I've got, you are dissatisfied with God and that's idolatry. But what does that take you back to? The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments are connected. The first commandment states it theologically. The tenth commandment states it ethically. At its core, our issues of, of, of fighting sin need to go back to the desires of our heart. What has gripped us? What has convinced us that if we have it, that will lead us to the good life. And this leads me to number four, or to number three, sorry. The flesh must be mortified by setting your heart on something greater. So you must mortify the flesh in the power of the spirit. You must mortify the flesh on all fronts. And your flesh must be mortified by setting your heart on something greater. So after you trace your sin patterns back to their desires, back to the dissatisfaction that you have with some aspect of God's providential plan for your life, you've got to replace it with something better. 
shocking fact. Showing people the badness of something doesn't usually convince them to stop doing it. I mean, I, I, I was stunned to read the statistic that despite decades of, of quite graphic ads sometime about the, the, the consequences of cigarette smoking, guess which profession has the highest, uh, supposedly the highest percentage of, of smokers? The healthcare. I remember, you know, when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, before a long weekend, they would give a safety briefing, basically telling young paratroopers not to be stupid and get in trouble or get killed, okay? And they would have Safety Dave come in and give a safety presentation because one thing young paratroopers love is to buy a crotch rocket and to go zooming at 120 miles an hour down the highway to, to get some of the adrenaline they get over in combat, okay? And... And he would say, don't do this, it's dangerous. Well, no kidding, that's why they're doing it. But he would show these horrific pictures of what happens when, when people would crash. And I'm like, you're, you're showing a bunch of gruesome pictures to people who just a few months ago were doing gruesome things to people. I mean, showing people horrific images and showing people all of the bad does not change their behavior off of it. Why? Because you haven't displaced the love they have for it. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see then why Paul is try begins this whole section by telling us to seek the things that are above, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are here on earth the human heart will have an object of worship the human heart as augustine knew 1700 years ago it is awesome how how much insight these old dead guys had into human psychology as we call it now the human being is motivated by loves we gravitate to that which we love and we love that which we perceive will give us the greatest happiness and benefit. The human heart will worship something. What? We will be driven by that love. The human heart cannot exist with a vacuum. Something will be worshipped. Now the reason why so many attempts at mortifying the flesh fail is we're thinking in terms of simply stopping the bad activity. But you don't just stop the bad activity. What you got to think in terms of is replacing the idol with the true and living God. You have to replace the love for one thing with a love for another. Because we will worship something there's an old pastor, Thomas uh, Chalmers, who preached in, it's now written, a sermon that's fantastic, and I want to encourage you to read it. It's entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive, not explosive, expulsive. It expels. You don't just stop doing bad things. You fall in love with the new thing that replaces the love of the old thing, which was itself driving the bad behavior. Which is why we are impelled 
Seek the things that are above. As long as your life is driven by priorities that are fundamentally earthly, it will be earthly considerations that take up residence as being most precious in your heart. And there goes the farm. Because as long as it's earthly things that are on the heart, you're fighting a losing battle to just keep snipping off weeds. Because they're going to keep popping up. You need a new affection. So focus on the things that are above. John Owen said this, On Christ's glory I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to the world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, something impossible to enjoy. So set your minds on things that are above. Focus on all that Christ is and has wrought for you, will give to you and fill your heart with the love of God in Christ and displace the old affection. This is why Bible study is so important. This is why prayer is so important. This is why public worship is so important. This is why participating and receiving the sacraments is so important. Where God, his good news, the promises of the kingdom, the promises of the gospel are reinforced before our very eyes. Where we receive them into ourselves through the ears and through the senses. And we're encouraged to behold heavenly beauties. So fight the war against sin. But remember that holiness is primarily an orientation of the whole person into conformity to the character and purpose of God. It's not just a list of behaviors. That's why so many of what Paul lists here are internal attitudes and, and thoughts. But what's driving all those sinful thoughts and, and desires is the idol that's sitting on the throne of your heart. You must displace that with a new affection for the one for whom you were made. And we do that by perceiving, by receiving, and by being accountable to each other. So, put on the new self. Why? Because the old self is dead. Don't gratify its desires anymore. Because it's not the real you. If you want to talk about living a lie, the lie is to act as if the old self is the actual you. So, mortify the flesh. Know that in this war, you will have ups, you will have downs. But a continual disciplined assault against sin's remaining indwelling presence in your life will be met by the Spirit, and you, in fact, will receive a day when you are glorified and presented without blemish at Christ's return. And oh, what a day that will be. Let's pray.